In my writing and my training, I, I coined the term the police perfection paradox, which uh, basically in, in its simplest form is, you know, the public has this expectation that we are truly superhuman. We're superheroes, that we know everything, we understand everything, we can shoot the gun out of their hand. And, you know, the, the fantasy well outweighs the reality of what that human being has to do in a split second uh, in the middle of the night, making decisions that, that many times are life and death. That's John Marks. He's the executive director of the Law Enforcement Survival Institute. He and John Marcy, the retired police chief of Kenosha, Wisconsin, and psychologist Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, joined me on this episode to discuss police reform because we need it. But whether or not we should defund the police, I don't think is the right question. In fact, I actually think that police departments need more money, less hierarchy, not less money. And we would achieve the same aims that those who call for defunding the police say they'd like to achieve. Less lethal encounters for black men between the ages of 20 and 35. But there are a lot of other advantages that would come from examining our belief system, what it is that we structure our law enforcement against. Are we too reliant on an extreme masculine principle? I'm not talking about, are we reliant on men? I'm talking about, are we reliant on this idea that everything has to be masculine in the extreme? hard, unyielding, never thinking twice, never having a moment of doubt, because it's vulnerability that makes us human. That's what brings us into balance, a sense of the masculine principle and the feminine. But this all sounds a little confusing and maybe a little new agey for you. You should listen to this interview. These are the kinds of things that should be discussed at the policymaking level, but aren't. But they are here on Documental, Mapping the American States of Mind. I'm Whitney Fishburne. Welcome. I would like to welcome my guests to this episode of Documental, and in particular, we're doing this video series, Healing the American States of Mind, not just mapping the American states of mind. We're taking a deeper dive into a proclamation, according to some of my readers, that I made that defending the police was dumb. I thought it was a dumb idea, and that upset a lot of my subscribers. So I backtracked a little bit, and I said, well, maybe it's just going too far. I do have a very definite belief, though, that we need we need some sort of accountable, reliable law enforcement. So what I would like to do with my guest, director John Marks, who is the founder and editor of Cops Alive, a website and a magazine, and is the executive director of Law Enforcement Survival Institute, um, which you founded after years on the Westminster, Colorado force, police force. And I believe it was after you lost a friend to suicide, a, a, a a fellow um, law enforcement officer to suicide. And then my another guest I have, um, and I'm very, by the way, I very much appreciate all of you being here, um, is Chief Don Morrissey, who is currently the city administrator for Kenosha, Wisconsin, which turned out to be kind of a fluke because he had retired as the chief of police of Kenosha, Wisconsin. And then you may remember my audience here, you may remember that this summer featured among all of the craziness that went on, there was a shooting and it was vigilantism in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, as the city administrator with nearly three decades of having been in the Kenosha police force, it turns out you are perhaps in the right place at the right time. You're not in the direct line of, of fire, but you are getting to, to bring your wisdom to bear on what's going on there. And then we have my friend and a longtime friend of mine from childhood and also a very well-respected suicide prevention advocate, Sally Spencer Thomas. Uh, Sally is a clinical psychologist and she's the president of United Suicide Survivors International. We are not specifically talking about suicide, but what I wanted to get to was not to say, well, is it right or wrong to defund the police? Let's just put this in a totally different lens. Let's look at why we have this problem to begin with. And so therefore, since what you all found in your work is that the job of policing can be so stressful and have so many different components to it that tear away at the mental health and the emotional stability of the police force, that it really becomes a question of, is there a problem with being able to express what you need to mentally, emotionally, spiritually in a way that 
keeps you sane, healthy, and able to protect and carry out your duties. And if that is compromised, is it because we have the wrong expectations of what it means to be tough? So really what I'm boiling this down to is let's talk about police reform through the lens of what some would call toxic masculinity, but I, I would actually just say maybe an extreme patriarchal, hierarchical expression of, of the just masculine energy. I don't want to get woo-woo, but I do think that this is a really important way to look at things. And you guys have all based what it is that you do now on, on being really upfront about how that plays out in our streets and, and in the homes of the police and in the forces themselves. So that's a really long introduction, but I, I um, wanted to be clear that we're all starting on the same page here. So um, Director Marks, just give us a little bit of a background in Cops Alive and your institute, and then your view on what I've just rambled on saying. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. <clears throat> well, I, I, I think that the thing I would say first to what you just described, it is a complex issue. And if we're seeking simplistic answers, we're not going to find that. So when we deal with complex issues, I think we have to recognize there are going to be complex solutions. Um, to give you a little bit of background, yes, I worked in law enforcement for uh, nearly 25 years <clears throat> in a variety of roles um, and, and left because I was kind of burned out. Mm -hmm. And shortly after I left, uh, a friend of mine who worked at a different agency who had also left the profession took his own life. And it was one of the saddest funerals I ever went to because no one saw this coming. He was, he was a leader. He was loved by everybody. Um, and yet those of us in law enforcement recognize that there are an awful lot of, um, a lot of challenges, a lot of trauma, a lot of issues that follow all of us around that you collect over the years of service that most people don't understand. And I think even our profession is struggling to understand <clears throat> that um, you know people have a, a lot of issues that we're not resolving. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One of the statements that I like to use is that if we don't take care of our people in law enforcement, we're not gonna be able to take care of the people and so in order for us to meet the high standards that are expected of us in our profession, we really have to look inwards and we have to provide services and support that really take care of the very good people that work in all branches of emergency service, both the sworn law enforcement officers, but firefighters, paramedics, and all the people that support us. Uh, it is a traumatic career and it takes its toll on human beings. And, and when we're not up to our best, we're not serving to our best. And I think that kind of, you know, is what you're getting at here. And I think we'd have a great discussion about that. Okay, thank you. So Chief Marcy, why don't you weigh in with your perspective on this? So I, I don't know that I would say the word is masculinity because I, I, I think we see that um, the female officers struggle mightily with this problem as, as well. So um, I just wanna make sure that we're understanding Standing everything there. Um, I think uh, if, if we don't do something as an organization, as a, a unit to make sure that the officers are healthy themselves, then they're not healthy for everything they do on there. Um, we're certainly not there yet. Um, so as I, I, I got to know Sally because of suicides, but um, I want, and I think we all do, we want to get away from ever needing the intervention or the postvention specifically, we want to stay where, you know, that suicide is never a thought for these officers, but that they never get to that point. Um, the toll that's taken, and again, Kenosha was thrown into the national spotlight, like it or not, but when I would go to the emergency operations center and look at these officers that are working 16, 18 hours a day, they're physically drained, uh, again, we're lucky here, we have peer support, we have uh, chaplains, we have all that stuff. But when you're working 16 hours, 20 hours a day, um, it's not there, you know? So we have to do a much better job of taking care of these officers' mental health. Um, you know, it's been said many times, mental health is just as important as their physical health. Quite frankly, I think it's more important because if you can't recover from it, um, you know, a break, broken leg, you'll recover. It's the understanding that officers can come back 
Um, but that they also need a break because it, it just doesn't happen the way it should. Uh, it's public safety all over. It's the dispatchers. Now that I'm in this position again, as you said, I'm not running just the PD, but I have 19 different departments now. And the majority of them were pulled into the riots and stuff from public works to streets to water. Um, so I, I've actually opened my eyes a little bit better of how it affects the employees of the entire city and the city in itself. So we, we can get there, um, but the mental health, and I'll tell you what hurts, and this is goes to your first line there, when these cops here defund the police, defund the police, that does nothing to, to help them mentally, physically, morally. It just does not. Um, again, should there be some reforms here and there? Yes. But the, the whole story doesn't get told. So I went to the academy in 1982. I was never trained uh, on how to do a chokehold. It's not allowed in Wisconsin, but you hear on the national level, oh, we're going to ban chokeholds. We're going to do this. Well, we haven't done them in Wisconsin at least since 82, and I don't think before that. So, I want to get back to that, but Sally, I just want to um, have you help us frame frame this then from the perspective of um, how calls for defunding the police can actually be demoralizing and be counterproductive. If you think, if, if you know, if you would agree with that, or if you see that in in um, in the context of their mental health. Yeah, I, I certainly do. And I, I've seen it from a number of angles. I work very closely with a lot of communities of color as well. And so I can also understand uh, some of the concerns and fears when they see these cases highlighted. Um, and I've also worked with with both the Johns here and many other law enforcement officers um, and have absolutely deep, the deepest respect. Um, I actually cut my teeth as a, as a police psychologist at the early part of my career. And I remember... Um, I, I was part of the Denver Police Department's victim assistance unit. And so I was called upon to go out into the middle of the night for people's absolute worst day. And law enforcement looked to me to provide some of the emotional support during those crises. And I burnt out so fast um, because it's very, very hard to do that every single day. So one of the things that I, I learned and, and developed a deep respect for is that, and this isn't the only profession where this is true, that the ability to kind of segment emotions and stick them over here is a survival strategy, not just for law enforcement, but also like surgeons and you know everybody who they cannot feel all the things in that moment or they can't do the job. And that's part of what set, set things up for a, a moment of vulnerability here where we're really needing to see and feel that compassionate officer in all these situations. I think another part of the story that doesn't get told that certainly is impacting um, officers everywhere is the fact that this job takes an enormous toll on people's families. Um, this is an all-consuming vocation that people went into uh, to serve and protect, like the whole heart's in there. Um, and when you're facing life and death day in and day out, you know, not you know, missing the kids' birthdays and all of these things. Like that's the behind the scenes stuff that the general public doesn't see. I was a, a, a therapist uh, working with police officers. That was the number one issue was, was conflict in the family because people couldn't be present or because this job was so all consuming. Layered upon that, the trauma and the departmental stressors that were just eating these officers alive. So I think there's a lot more to understanding like the whole human behind the badge that again, we don't get to see played out. So when the only focus is on these cases that have absolutely galvanized the world uh, and her are horrific, um, we forget the, the, the tens of thousands of officers everywhere um, that are just fighting every day to get up and, and serve and protect our communities. And that's the part that's really heartbreaking. So yeah, when you hear defund the police over and over again, um, you know, that whole, you know, majority group of people is, uh, is feeling that they, they're not a value, that they, that they don't matter. And it's really hard to get up and put your life on the line every day when that's the message you're hearing. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very hard. Well, I, okay, so all three of you have pointed to something I really wanna dive into, but let me frame this again, let kind of like subframe it with some statistics. And then we're gonna to get to is, um, you know, uh, Chief, you said something about you never learned how to do a chokehold. That's not something that's taught to officers. So why is that even an issue? I want to talk about that because, um, you know, if if an officer kills 
a, a suspect by a chokehold? Is he having a moment of mental stress that's just gone haywire? Or is he motivated because he has something else going on? And I want to get into that. But let me just read a few statistics that I pulled here. And these, interestingly enough, they all came from um, various government agencies that uh, reported these things last year, except for the National Academies of Science, which is, is um, it's a nonprofit that you know, it, it, um, it advises Congress, so it's not, it's not entirely funded as a, it's not an institution of uh, the federal government. But um, back in August of last year, they found that between the ages of 20 and 35 are the most deadly years for a black man to uh, encounter a policeman because one in 1,000 black men during, uh, in that age group will die after an encounter with the police. And you compare that to one in 2,000 men overall, and that includes Latins, whites, Asians, and so forth. So in, in the end, it's two and a half times more likely that a black man that age will die compared to a white man. Um, and then, you, then interestingly enough, women are one in a 33,000, one woman in 33,000 will die after an encounter with the police. So. I don't know what to make of that, actually. I didn't find any other statistics that kind of gave me a better idea of where that was going. And, you know, oftentimes you'll hear, well, blacks are committing more crimes. And so they're, you know, and they live in more crime-ridden neighborhoods. So um, that's why they have more uh, of, an, of a lethal um, risk. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to look at that, too. One thing that I think is probable is actually that it's because they're over-policed and that you know, I found another statistic for they're up to four times more likely to be arrested for criminal possession of marijuana, whereas the same um, suspect who's white won't be arrested. He won't have to face the same consequences. So, you know, there, there are different ways to look at this. It is not entirely fair. The statistics go on and on. But really what I, I wanted to, um, to make sure that we discussed was, was there an intentionality to harm blacks. And I think that is a little bit harder to pick apart because first of all, you can't know the minds and the hearts of every single person in law enforcement, you just can't. And secondly, um, you know, when you're looking at it based on statistics, you could make it go in, in a lot of different ways. But when I start to think of it in terms of whether or not it actually does emanate from a system that is overly one thing or another, and I and uh, Chief, you said, you know, there are a lot of women who experience these types of burnout as well. I don't mean male and female. I mean that sort of masculine energy of tough and enduring and not vulnerable. And I think of that as having gone to the extreme. And so this is subtle, but what I'm saying is, is it's not the men and women of our law enforcement. It's just that the system itself maybe actually reigns supreme over everyone involved because it's kind of got a mind of its own. It started historically law enforcement goes back in this country to hunting down slaves and bringing them back to their masters. So when that becomes the seed of things that hasn't entirely been addressed, maybe there is an element of it being um, biased itself, the way it was created, not the people serving it. And for, you know, I've written about this too. You know, we have plenty of people of color who serve in law enforcement. And they are not looking to terrorize their own communities and their own ethnic backgrounds. And I think it's ridiculous when we see things like we did in New York City earlier this year, where people are marching around with signs that are so absolute, you know, NYPD equals racism. That's nuts. That's crazy. And that's not even using your head. And these people really do want to protect us. I do believe that. I actually do believe that. I may be naive, and I am obviously not a black man. So I'm going to have a completely different perspective on this. But I do think that there has to be a balance of all the energies. We have a masculine need in life for things to be strong, to be protected, for us to know that there's going to be a consequence for an action. Just as much as we have the need, as you are all pointing out in your work, to allow for that to be breathable and flexible and vulnerable. And that is where I go in with the more feminine energy. And it's just not something we talk about in policymaking. We don't talk about the masculine and the feminine balance, but we should, and that's what we're doing here. So to this idea that these families, these men and women of law enforcement have family issues because 
there's too much of an extreme called upon from the law enforcement officer in their job, and then they go home and they're fried, they're burnt out. You know, when they're coming to work, are they bringing that and is that what's causing the violence? Is it the system causing the violence against these black men and, and others, but primarily black men, because that's what we've seen erupt so much in the last two decades? Um, or is it that they have a mental health problem? And I just want to get that out of the way. Are we allowing people with mental health problems to come onto the force and then play that out? So um, I, let's go to you, Director Marks. Well, I think the, the very end of what you just said, <clears throat> in my opinion, really gets to what we need to talk about. First of all, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not even a sociologist. So, you know, the issues of widespread racism are difficult issues, and I'm not sure I'm the one that is most qualified to talk about that. But I do think that it's absolutely critical that our society starts to talk about it, and we are. And, and so, you know, I think that's a good thing. But I think there are a couple of big issues here. One is poverty. It has, in my lifetime, it has been on the forefront of what we're trying to fix a number of times. And yet, I don't think we've changed the, the uh, landscape of American, you know, equality when it comes to poverty. And so there are some issues there that generate problems with crime. But the probably the biggest issue here that I think is what is at the forefront of what we're talking about today is mental health. Um, and you were sort of alluding to the mental health of law enforcement. And I think that's where most of us work here in this group. But uh, both my parents were mental health providers. And uh, the issue of mental health in our country has been sidelined for years. And it's probably the worst it's ever been. And what society fails to recognize is that uh, the people with mental health issues are not going away. Mm -hmm. In fact, many of them have been released from any care facilities that they might have been in uh, over time because of funding. So all of those people are out on the streets and we're asking our police to constantly intervene in mental health issues uh, that may be beyond their capacity. So, you know, I think we're talking about some fairly large societal issues mm -hmm. here. And unfortunately, no matter what it is that we're talking about, COVID, whatever, uh, our first line responders are the people that have to be there 24 seven on the spot in your neighborhood, in your home, uh, to help you when there's a crisis. And, you know, that's an awful lot to ask of, uh, of anyone. And you have to consider that many of the people that are in service right now are very young and inexperienced, and it's a challenge. Hmm. And that's so just calling for defunding, I don't think gets to the heart of what we have to do. There are mental health issues we have to address both in our profession and in our communities, and we're not doing that. How about you, Chief? And, and um, you know, feel free to say more specifically what you see happening in your police force there in Kenosha ever since the the, um, the murder. I mean, you had a vigilante running the streets. I mean, it seems very clear to me that that was there was no justification for him to be running around with a borrowed weapon and looking for somebody to take matter into his own hands against. Well, I, I personally agree that you don't need the militia here. Again, I don't know, though, that we, we simply want to have a answer for everything. There, there's so much stuff going on, I have no idea. Uh, again, I can't comment on the specific case there of what the police did or didn't know when he's running by there. Um, you know, there were other crimes going on. There's fires. We had 35 different businesses lit on fire. Um, you know, I, I just, it, it seems like we have to have somebody immediately that has to be to blame for whatever. Um, I sit in this office every day and if you're underinsured or didn't have insurance or something happened, it's the city's fault and they need to pay for it. Um, I think the city did what they could do, the best they could do at that time. Um, nobody knew that on August 23rd at whatever time it was, the the Kenosha Police Department were going to be involved in an officer-involved shooting. Um, the misinformation that's out there references shooting is tremendous. Mm. Um, again, I'm not the one that can put out there the facts yet. The case has not been there, but a lot of it is just flat out wrong. Um, but this day and age in social media, um, 
And then you go back to the police force, I guess. So, so we have a police force now that has to listen to defund the police. Um, there's a, a protest almost weekly, if not daily, depending on what it is. But there's both sides. There's back to blue. There's um, Catholics had a big march up through the, the town here. Um, you know, it, it's what it is. And most cops go out and do their job what it, it might be. And so everybody understands my son, my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law are all in the department. So not only, you know, was I involved as a chief and did it for 30 plus years, I'm the father, the parents, the family that Sally's talking about of these kids. So, you know, when this is all happening, I'm making my kids text me at five in the morning when they're coming home from an 18 hour shift, you know, yeah, maybe a joke internally between us that, you know, now they still have to, but, um, it's demoralizing. To your point of mental health, um, there's just a recent study come out, and I haven't read the whole thing, that they believe there's 25% of the police force that have mental health issues. Um, we need to decide what that means, because yeah. what policing was in 1982 is not policing in 2020. We're not trained as mental health providers. Yes, we go through crisis intervention training, those kinds of things. Um, Again, until you sit down and look at the facts of all that, um, I can tell you in 33 years, never once, never once did I wake up and say, my goal is to arrest a black individual today. Never once. Well, Sally, before you jump in, I want to make sure that I tie together something that the two, the two officers here are saying. You're both saying that things are so different since 1982. Um, well, or you were a little bit later to, uh, within the same reference, you know, the same field of reference. So like so the, the 80s to now, because you weren't necessarily on the forces that you served in for the exact same years. But okay, so back to the 80s. And uh, Director Marks, you said that mental health issues have increased dramatically. And Chief, you're saying that um, the, uh, the same is true, and you can't necessarily know what's going on in the minds of the, um, the law enforcement that are on the streets, but it's a, you know whatever statistic you're referring to is there's at least a quarter of them have issues that need to be addressed and maybe aren't getting addressed. And I have suggested um, strongly with my publication documental that in fact, even though I cannot necessarily prove it correlatively, I don't I don't have any actual correlation. I can prove I can at least chart objective you know as a, as an observer that. Since the 1980s, as we have had this more patriarchal, hierarchical approach to our society, where we've cut things that were society's um, social kind of um, the, the net to make sure that everybody had what they needed so that they weren't homeless, so that they were educated, so that they were not in pain, you know, their basic needs were met. So our social services got cut, that sort of hard-edged financier rules all very much toward the 99% of the rest of us versus the 1%. As that has increased and gotten more extreme, that extreme capitalism, that extreme masculine side of things, we have seen a trajectory just shoot through the roof of anxiety and depression and suicide and a lot of mental health issues. So this is, you're, I think, making the point that I'm saying, which is we're actually stuck in a system that is perhaps not even sustainable, I don't think it's sustainable. And that is actually causing us to fight amongst ourselves over problems that do need to be addressed, but aren't really our fault necessarily, and maybe aren't even ones we can solve because we don't have the power to do it because the systems are set up from a perspective, from a point of view that doesn't really allow for this kind of balance that we're talking about. And so defunding the police becomes this nonsensical movement that doesn't even really address what the real problem is. And the real problem is, is that we don't have a balanced resource. We don't have a balance of resources, nor do we really have a balance of perspective on who deserves those resources. And there we, we get angry at the police, but the police are in the same boat as the rest of us. We're all suffering and we all need something that we're not getting and that we're not being told is even ever gonna be made available to us. Does this make sense to everyone? Yeah, that, that was pretty much the point that I was going to make was that instead of defunding the police, uh, what if we 
increase funding to the police to make things better, to increase peer support options and other types of mental health supports, to, to improve training um, for, for uh, understanding their own mental health issues as well as serving on the street, um, to, get, to get them out of the response to the mental health crises that are happening on the street because that's an escalated situation. Um, why don't we work to make things better rather than to strip an already very stressed, uh, stressed system? Um, I, also, I also wanted to mention, um, you, you called to kind of the historical roots of the situation that we currently find ourselves in, and, and they are deep, absolutely mm -hmm. deep. You know, we saw, you talked about the kind of the origins of law enforcement in our country, but um, the systemic racism that we're currently experiencing is not just the law enforcement or the judicial system. It is our healthcare system, our education system. Uh, young black boys in particular are far more likely to get a diagnosis of conduct disorder than, than, other, than white boys. And so from the time that they're five, they're already been identified as a problem kid with a label and a diagnosis that sets them on a trajectory to uh, not get the, the support that they need because of our, uh, our, our our biases in our healthcare systems and so forth. And that you can find that kind of bias everywhere, every single space, housing, education, you name it, um, even access to healthy food, all of it, it it's everywhere. Um, so it's permeating. Um, and then you add to the, the fact that our history is all about violence with blacks and whites and that we have generations of fear around this. So you talked about, you know, the, you know, women, um, you know, much less likely to die in a police encounter. Well, I know for me, if I'm in trouble, you know, my car is broken down or I'm worried somebody's going to break in the house or whatever. And a police officer shows up. I have a police officer who lives next door to me. I go, Oh God, thank yeah. God you're here. Thank God you're here. I was so scared. Right. That is not the experience of black people at all. They are scared no matter even if it's just a speeding ticket, like, you know, my PhD black friends, they are scared out of the gate. So you're in your first seconds of encounter, I'm meeting you with gratitude and thank God you're here. And they, no matter what the circumstance, are scared. And when you come at this from a fear and defensive point of view, it's not gonna end well. <laughs> For most people, it's just not gonna end well because the, the distrust goes back generations and generations right. and generations. So. Every single circumstance is starting off on that foot of fear on both sides, uh, where when, 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 when our brains are in fear, the frontal lobes are not engaged. And so you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're reacting to one another in a way that sets up a potential for violence in, in spaces that we're not going to see that happening. I, I, think that, I think I'm trying to make sense. Then you add to the fact that every single decision a law, a law officer needs to make is scrutinized by millions of people, right? Or, they all have to wear cam cameras now. Or right, recorded. it's recorded. And, and it's up for grabs from anybody, anywhere. Uh, and you just try to put yourself in those shoes. You know, if you had to walk around with a camera on your body every single day and every single decision you got to make was scrutinized and second guessed by every single person in this world, you know, how on edge are you? in those moments. Um, and again, hard to engage the frontal lobes when you've got all of that stress plus this, you know, generations old history of trauma and fear between these between these groups. Well, that's um, actually, uh, to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but um, that's another point I think should be brought to the table when we talk about the anxiety that's gone up across the board in society is, is we're always under surveillance. And that does make you feel a little bit, you know, unnatural or worried. So thank you, Sally. I think that's that is um, that's exactly what we're talking about. Is is that we're really dealing with a system. We're not dealing with individuals who are bad. And so um, I'd like to go back to our, our two experienced officers with this. Then, do you do you agree that it's the system more than the people? Because you know some of my readers wrote in, and then I did look look at the information they provided, and I found an FBI report back in 2006 where. There's been an increase in white supremacists who join the force and they use law enforcement as a way for them to carry out their racist aims. That doesn't make law enforcement people racist, but it does make you wonder if the system is, uh, it lends itself to people who do have racist aims. So um, either, you know, why don't we go back to Dr. Director Marks and 
see what you have to say about that and then any solutions you might have. I'm going to be transparent here and I'm going to pivot away from your question, but I'll answer it as best I can. Um, you know, one of the things that I notice, you know, in my lifetime, all of this, uh, the explosion of television and media and now social media and the ability like we're doing now to connect across the country, across the world with people face-to-face -face using technology, it has changed our perspectives on so many things. And what I see there is that it magnifies and amplifies everything. And what I see, uh, you know, comparing what I see on media versus what I see in reality is that I think for the most part, um, people are good people. And I certainly believe that law enforcement people are good people. There are, there are bad people that get into any kind of career and there are people that make bad mistakes in any kind of job. Um, you know, there's no doubt that white supremacy is a rising domestic terrorist threat. Uh, but to say that they're everywhere and that they're infiltrating, I think we're focused on very small numbers. So let me pivot away and let's, I want to talk about what are we going to do about this? Mm -hmm. um, okay. And, you know, I worked uh, for a number of years in my career as a community policing administrator because I truly believe in the old the old concepts of what we call community policing now. I was just interviewed the other day by a group in the United Kingdom and it's just good old fashioned British policing where, you know, where we used to walk a beat and where we used to know people and where we, you know, as Sally said, my neighbors, the, the policemen, um, you know, I think we have to get back to our roots. And it's sad that in larger communities, maybe larger than the one I worked in, it's hard for the police to be out meeting people and, and doing anything besides running from crime to crime, uh, mm -hmm. you know, throughout their day. And as John said, now those days are 18 hour days in the midst of all this unrest. But, uh, you know, I think the best prevention here is to start from scratch and the police need to get to know the people they're serving and the people that are in our communities need to know their police. One of the things that got me into my career was when somebody suggested I go do a ride along uh, and really find out what the job was like. And I was fascinated by it. And I've taken many people on ride alongs with me and they have no clue what the job is like. Um, because we have our imaginings from television and movies. So mm -hmm. I, I think we get we need to get back to grassroots, people that um, are very frustrated with their police. Instead of being angry and confronting them, I think they need to be willing to have some dialogue and talk and learn what's what the other side's perspective is. And, and I'm not saying that police shouldn't do that as well. But uh, we've gotten to a point where anger seems to be the solution to everything, and it's the solution to nothing. So... I think we have to start with some grassroots and get back to some old fashioned community building and bring people together instead of tearing them apart. Thank you. I want to um, have Chief jump in and then I want to come back to you because um, you have done something about it. And I want to talk to you more about well, And I just have to say one more thing. I had to laugh earlier. You're talking about masculinity and I was on a SWAT team for nearly 20 years. I think I get the whole masculinity thing, but my friends are going to make all kinds of fun of me because I'm holding a Tigger cup and uh, <laughs> I'm not the, uh, not the role model of masculinity here. So, so go ahead over to over you. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's, not true. Maybe you are exactly the type of masculinity that we're talking about we need more of. A guy who can be on a SWAT team and drink from a Tigger cup. You know, that's maybe the kind of policemen that we, policemen and women that we need. And um, so, Chief, jump in. How about we take away the, the jobs that have been forced on in the last 10, 12 years that they shouldn't have? And then we wouldn't have to defund them. They'd be funded properly. But every time it seems like, and, and you had brought this up, was anytime there's a societal issue that there's no money left to deal with, well, the first responders are the ones that come there. Um, that's where we really need to, to work on this. Um, I just got the other day um, from uh, former Governor Kasich, his Ohio, after their issues they went through in Ohio. And one of the things in there is we can talk about police reform, we can talk about defunding them, but what are we gonna do as a community to do this? Um, I don't wanna get into every police shooting and how they could have been done differently on both sides, but I think every time we hear, we forget about, the community has to play a huge role 
in changing this culture as well. It's not just the 214 mm -hmm. policemen in Kenosha because we have Chicago right to the south of me has a black mayor, a black police superintendent, a black um, head of the county board. They still have the same issues, if not worse than us. So those are the kind of conversations that nobody wants to have, you know, is there concerns and issues? Um, first, I've heard that uh, white supremacists were actually trying to infiltrate the police. I don't know that. Um, that becomes a certainly an issue that we need to make sure aware of, um, you know, if, if they're there, and I'm just going back again to when I did backgrounds, we we looked at everybody's website, we looked at stuff to, to make sure they didn't have all that stuff. If, if there was, they, they were out. Um, and again, maybe I misunderstood this whole masculinity thing at the beginning because we, we've certainly tried to hire a lot more female officers um, and change that culture, but, um, you know, Part of police work is enforcement and that gets forgot. And I'll tell you, not only here, but I can watch as I watch across the country, there isn't as much enforcement being done anymore because the officers I think are becoming reactive versus proactive and, and that's not good for communities. Okay, so I just make sure that we don't, um, that I hit the important things here and we all understand we're talking about the same thing then. Um, so. Police, you all are saying, and I can see that you're all saying police actually could use more funding, more funding because you are not, not only because you need more um, resources to deal with the mental health stressors of the law enforcement officers, but also because you are being asked and you're a city administrator now, chief, so you see the types of things that need to be done in a community. Policemen and women are being asked to take on roles that in the past they never were, were asked to take on. And uh, back to the point we were making earlier that there's just a much higher level of people with mental health issues in the streets than there were 30, 40 years ago. You're encountering people who have mental health issues that you've never had the training to deal with. And that creates a whole other line of problems where you're dealing with people who really need mental health services, not law enforcement services. There have been some congressional uh, attempts to, to separate the two so that, you know, on a call where somebody's having maybe they come down off of a, an opioid, they get the help they need mental health wise or suicide or whatever. But that's not really across the board. You are being asked to do all kinds of administrations to people with serious psychosocial problems that you don't have the training and the wherewithal to deal with. So that's one reason we're talking about not defunding, but actually increasing funding. And a lot of that would be to increase training or to at least increase bringing in people like social workers or other types of people who do have the, the wherewithal and the training to deal with the types of encounters that you're having increasingly. So that's one thing. But again, I keep hearing this theme from every one of us that, you know, there's only so much we are able to do, that the system really kind of seems without, it's beyond our ability to change because there's so many expectations that we have, uh, maybe one way to put it is, is we have all of the authority and none of the, um, or all of the responsibility, but none of the authority, that, that's saying. It does seem like that's what we're talking about here, where we're expected, or you are expected to do all kinds of things that you just cannot ever achieve. So you're set up to fail. And, and nobody wants to go into a situation where no matter what they do, they're going to fail because that robs you of hope and that causes you shame. And those are two factors, hopelessness and shame, that will prevent you from feeling at ease and, and able to do your job. But what I don't want to let go under the radar here is, are you saying that if we had more fully resourced uh, police departments, that things like what happened with George Floyd or Michael Brown in Ferguson wouldn't happen. So is it that if we had more resources, there wouldn't be any of this kind of um, attack on black men? Would that statistic of two and a half times more likely to be uh, a lethal encounter if you're a black man between the ages of 20 and 35, would that change if we didn't defund but actually increased funding? Do you think that that would really change the outcome for black men? So I'll start there. I don't know that it would totally change that. I, I can't speak to that. I would hope that there's many things out there with George Floyd that would change. So I think when you look at police, 
there's incidents that happen that none of us understand. As a chief, as an officer for years, I don't understand why that occurred. I, I, I don't know about Ferguson. Um, again, when there's weapons involved, things change or your training kicks in. Um, what does hurt is snippets of whatever the story of the day is. Um, and this was a few years back, but I had the editor of the local paper who was no longer here come in and sit in my office when I was a chief and say, it doesn't matter if we're correct, we just have to be first anymore. And I think that's the problem is everybody wants to be first. Mm -hmm. We can correct it, well, you can't, you know, mm -hmm. when, when it's on the front page and the corrections on the back page three days later. Um, but that's what yeah. I see our officers are, are, their biggest issue now is their stories told before there's really the, the story there. Uh, not that it matters, but here was my, my week. So Jesse Jackson is sitting over in that chair on Friday. Tuesday, I'm sitting with President Trump. And Thursday, I'm sitting with Vice President Biden. They couldn't be much different, the three of them. And I said, when you're ready to really have a conversation, let's have it. So I would pray that, number one, because they are all leaders, that they refrain from making judgment to begin with, no matter which one they are. And all three had their judgments very much different in here. So number one, stop judging until you have all the facts. We have a, a system in place that I believe works in the end. You know, some would say in the Breonna Taylor case, it didn't work. Again, I believe in the system and I, I do that. But stop judging. Um, and then stop trying to turn it so political. Because all three of them, again, two are certainly presidential candidates, but all three are very political and, and it's their message. But they all say... To me, we want to talk about this. We want to have an open and honest dialogue. But if I'm not on the same page as they are, President Trump doesn't want to hear what I have to say. If I'm talking about, you know, increasing funding for the police, Jesse Jackson doesn't want to hear what I have to say, you know. And I've met Mr. Biden a couple of times. Um, I personally find him to be a very nice man to talk to. But when you come out and you prejudge the officer here specifically in Kenosha, that doesn't show much of a leadership to me. So the first thing I'm going to tell them is, you know, you can't prejudge. You need to get all the facts. And then again, I will give the vice president credit, the former vice president. If you're really going to bring everybody to the table, it's just like you. You've got four of us here. The table's going to be much bigger, but we need Sally's input. We need your input as a uh, reporter in the field. We need Johns from running these institutes. You can't just have one side or the other. Um, so there's my advice to those three men again. Um, and they all three gave me very different messages, of course. Well, and I'm sensitive to you not wanting to be political, but I, I wanted to touch on this before I let all of you go anyway. And that is, you know, it, it seems like we're talking about a problem that has been systemic and, and growing for a long time. And now it's come to a head because of what happened with, from my perspective, watching it on TV, when I saw it that day, I went, oh my goodness, that is George Floyd. Or I didn't know the man's name. I said, that man is being killed right before my eyes. I mean, it was, it was awful. And I was already traumatized by what I saw happen with the Trayvon Martin case. So I was sensitized to this to begin with. But now we have it as, 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 a, as an actual motivation for, for people to go to the polls. And it seems like it's become a way to define who you are. Either you are, you are for a president who is, from my view, putting the police in a, in a no-win situ no situation where you either have to put that kind of, uh, pro the, put the protests down or you have to support the very clearly white supremacist element in our society who wants to use this moment to achieve something. I'm not sure what it is. So here you are with an opportunity to talk to somebody that I believe has put you in a no-win situation. Do you express that to him? Do you feel that? Am I wrong in my assessment? Is there now a heat on, on law enforcement that's never fully been there before, even if we've had problems with wanting to reform the law enforcement? I mean, you just really are in a no-win situation from this voter's perspective. I don't feel that pressure. I didn't feel it in when I was in law enforcement. Um, just because President Trump 
says he's pro-law enforcement. There's a lot of things he's done that I don't think are pro-law enforcement. Joe Biden, for all the years he was uh, the vice president in the Senate, has done a lot of good things for law enforcement. Um, again, you know, Jesse Jackson is, is different in that context politically, but um, I don't feel that pressure. Um, I will tell you, um, there are officers who believe, you know, that Trump is a stronger law enforcement candidate, but I know lots of people that are officers that are voting the other way. Um, again, I, I would say that's kind of a judgment where people are making it. It's not necessarily true. Um, are there organizations that came out, the FOP and stuff? Yes, they were sitting with Trump at the same table I was. Uh, but that that's, you know, that representation. But that doesn't mean all the people that belong to that um, are, are voting that way. So um, my mayor is... Nonpartisan, of course, but certainly when he was in the legislature, he was a Democrat the whole time. We don't agree on a lot of things here, um, but I think there's a mutual respect between us. I can say my views, he can say his, um, come to the happy median. So if I'm talking to the president of the United States or the future president of the United States, if Joe Biden wins, I got the same message for him. Mr. President, you know, whoever you are, we need better resources for our officers. Am I willing to talk about reforms, changes, whatever word you want to use? Absolutely. But let's do it in the real context of everything that's going on. I think you can have those discussions. I've had them for years. I came in as the chief. The NAACP did not like me. When I retired, they gave me the uh, Person of the Year Award. So we all move, I think, that needle somewhere. But the communication between me and the local NAACP and the uh, Urban League changed dramatically. Did we both learn and grow from that? I think we did. Um, I, I think training will really help Whitney. I really do. Um, whether it's de-escalation, I went to uh, mindfulness training. Um, a good friend of ours, Dr. Uh, Scott Salvatore, um, sits on committees with us, works for uh, uh, the Department of uh, Homeland Security, I went to San Diego for a week. A lot of people believe in this mindfulness training and maybe Sally does and John, I don't know. It did nothing for me, not, not a thing. In fact, they, they, the joke was maybe I was mindlessness, but um, <laughs> I'm not, that might work because the, a lot of the young people in the class I was in with were uh, border patrol agents or military. And a lot of them found that it worked, but one thing doesn't work for all of us. It I never has. That's, that's where, um, I think we, we fail too as a society as well. This is, this is there. Um, I'm sure Sally would tell you there's suicide prevention things that work for one individual that will not work for the others. Director Marks, then I, I just, um, I want to get a definitive answer from you on, uh, and thank you, Chief, um, on this idea that, you know, if mental health is an issue in law enforcement, it's, um, it's going on as a completely separate issue from um, racist hatred that's infiltrating the the force because you know there um, there are statistics which which show that there are a lot of white supremacists who are entering the force and you know ostensibly there to to create law and order when in fact they want to carry out other aims whether or not that means that they have their own diagnosis you know that's potential you know maybe that maybe their aims could be seen as some sort of mental imbalance i'm not actually saying that sally if you want to weigh on that you feel free but i just want to be sure that we're clear that you're saying the resources need to be put to people who are who are facing mental health stresses as a result of the job and that they're that as far as you know there it's not as though the police forces are being infiltrated by people who um, they may or may not be, but that's not really what you want to address. That's not what you see, or that's, and this is what goes back to, you know, if we did give all the resources that uh, we're talking about to law enforcement, would that two time, two and a half times more likely to have a lethal encounter if you're a black man come down? Would the outcome be different? And, you know, the chief says training would change things, which would require resources, but that would also assume then that we don't have people who mean harm. 
Well, that, I, that's absolutely true. And hiring is not my channel, but I absolutely agree that um, we have to be selecting the very best people. And, and we have extensive selection processes and hiring processes to make sure we're getting nothing but the very best people. Uh, and I know every agency is different and we have to take into account that many, many, well over half, I think up to 75% of the agencies in this country are very small. Um, so it's a big challenge, but I agree with Chief Morrissey. I think training is is where we need to put our our eggs, so to speak, in this basket. And, you know, I challenge people to think about what you were asking our police, what we're asking our emergency responders to do. Uh, in my writing and my training, I, I coined the term the police perfection paradox, which basically in, in its simplest form is, you know, the public has this expectation that we are truly superhuman. We're superheroes, that we know everything, we understand everything, we can shoot the gun out of their hand. And, you know, the, the fantasy well outweighs the reality of what that human being has to do in a split second uh, in the middle of the night, making decisions that, that many times are life and death. I'm not taking sides on the issue of race here, but nonetheless, the issue is that we're asking human beings, black, white, of all colors and genders, uh, to, to make these uh, amazing split-second decisions. So what are we doing to empower them, to train them, to fortify them, to be able to do that? Well, I believe that training needs to be very comprehensive. It, it needs to be physical fitness training, but it also needs to be mental and cognitive focus training for, for good decision-making. We need to have emotional regulation training so that you know we're not uh, bringing our biases and our emotions into our decision-making process. And then the one factor that most people never want to talk about is the spiritual component. You know, what are the values that are driving the individual making these decisions in a split second? Uh, why do they do what they do? And, and you know, are they very clear about what their, ob their obligations are? What's their mission? What are the values of their community? So, you know, I think we just don't do enough training to put people into these positions and be as strong and capable as we need them to be. So I think that, that we have a lot of work to do on the inside. And my job is to work with law enforcement agencies and law enforcement officers and other emergency responders to make them the very best they can be. And uh, that's, that's a huge challenge. So really what the theme we're getting at here is, is that there has to be more communication and more understanding. You, you are doing the mandate of the community that hires you and maybe the communities that are, are hiring their law enforcement and paying for law enforcement aren't really clear what they're asking you to do and how to do it. And I'm starting to understand that. I mean, I really do think we're onto it here when we're talking about the systemically, the problem is, is that we are not in touch anymore with what it is to be a balanced society. And it goes to my, my notion that we've gone too far in the direction of it's all about money and, and stripping the world of resources if it makes a few people a, a profit. So um, Sally, you've been, so patient and, and hearing all of these great things that your colleagues in suicide prevention are saying, I'm wondering if maybe you want to wrap up um, from your perspective on what it means to work. I mean, I know you've done a lot of work. Most of your career has been focused on working with first responders and, and men who are expected to be men. And you've been saying you can be men, but, but men also need to have a place inside they can go to that's soft and vulnerable. And it doesn't make them less of a man. Yeah, I, I get it. I just want, this was about them and, and they're sharing their stories and perspectives. And I just, I guess the other thing that I'll just add, um, I'm, I, I am hopeful. Energized a bunny of hope over here. I, I, I really want to go back. Both of you said it in a different way. The way we're going to get through this, the way we're going to rebuild trust, the way we're going to heal communities is we have to spend time with one another. We're so polarized now. Um, with the other, whatever the other is, wherever you sit, there's the other, um, that we don't see the other as a human anymore. Um, and so I loved your suggestion, uh, Director Marks, about we need to go back to community policing. I need to know and trust and love, you know, the people in my community, the officers that are here to protect. So I, I, I feel that, right? So training can help to some degree, 
but we got to get around tables with one another, get to know each other, get to know our families, get to know what's stressing our communities out on a much deeper level for the communities to know what's stressing the police out on a much deeper level um, if we're ever going to get through this. Um, and so that's something that is also going to require some funding in addition to the training. Um, and the other piece is the, 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 the peer support. If we can catch this early, um, the stressors that are mounting and give people the right level of supports to get through with it so that they don't get into such a reactive phase. Um, again, that'll be proactive. We'll, we can help difficult calls or difficult family stressors before they become catastrophic. And both these men have led on the national platforms for that to advocate for, a, as you heard uh, Director Marks talk about the whole officer, um, not just their you know, physical fitness and their tactical uh, uh, competence, but their whole person coming to work. When we're able to do that much better, they're going to see other people in their community. So I think this was a very uh, provocative and thoughtful um, conversation that you have set up for us today. Great. Well, I think so too. And I really appreciate both, well, all three of you, but especially the two officers here and, and for being candid, uh, especially Chief in the situation that you, you're in. And also Director Marks, thank you very much for your service to, I think what you're both doing by talking about it and, and, and talking about what it means to be tough by being vulnerable is, is actually true leadership that we're gonna need in the next generation. I, I, I'm really curious to see where this, you're saying that a lot of these cops are young. I, I'm, I'm curious to see what's gonna happen to them and how they're going to, to show us what it means to be to be strong. As long as you continue to have these conversations and bring the right panelists in, um, we'll make headway one way or the other. Thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. Well, thank you everybody. And um, I look forward to perhaps talking about things and showing improvement in the future. Great. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Sally. Thanks for what Good you're job. doing. Thank you. Bye-bye.